0: Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tip of the iceberg, a warning from the WHO chief as the coronavirus spreads. Trump's trillions, the US president announcing a bumper budget for 2021, and like a record baby. Tesla's stock has investors spinning right round again. It's Monday, let's make a move. once again to First Move this Monday. Great to have you with us. Hopefully, we'll be able to provide one or two Oscar-worthy moments. But I tell you what, they're not going to come from the markets. Take a look at what we're seeing around the globe. Investor sentiment feels far more muted starting at the session this week than it did at the back end of last week. U.S. futures right now in stocks flat. In Asia, the Hang Seng losing just over half a percent. And in Europe, the stocks 600. The major stocks there also in the red. And once again, it's travel. And oil stocks that are weighing here amid that rising concern about the spread of the coronavirus outside of China. And that's key. And I think, as I've mentioned, that concern being fueled by a tweet from the WHO director on Sunday saying, quote, the detection of a small number of cases may indicate more widespread transmission in other countries. In short, we may only be seeing the tip of the iceberg Plenty more of analysis on this coming up in the show. In the meantime, President Xi Jinping speaking on Chinese state TV earlier saying his country will win the fight against the virus. And perhaps there's some reasons for a degree of optimism on that. Reuters reporting that Taiwan's Foxconn has received approval to resume production at a plant in northern China. Foxconn, of course, is Apple's main supplier in Asia. Tesla also saying that they'll get back to work. The problem is it's just not clear how many firms will indeed reopen and even if workers will turn up. In the meantime, China's central bank continuing to add fresh stimulus here too, this time in the form of special funds for businesses impacted by the outbreak. Let's get to the latest on all the details. China increasing imports of meat and essentials amid rising shortages. This, of course, as the country deals with the ongoing coronavirus fallout. Millions of people due to return to work today after the new year break, but many schools, businesses and cities remain on lockdown. The outbreak now more fatal than SARS, with 910 people losing their lives, over 40,000 cases worldwide. David Culver, is in Beijing and continues to cover this story David I've been mentioning and reiterating people simply trying to get back in action here businesses reopening what's your experience what are you seeing in Beijing
1: right technically it is back to business back to normal at least officially but it's it's not really i mean the reality julia is if you go around this still seems like such an empty city in many parts and there, and there's also part of this that you have to understand and that is that uh, folks are being still urged by their businesses by their employers stay home if you don't need to come in work remotely let's still avoid people coming together in large masses and congregating the other aspect of this has to do with migrant workers you got to remember all of this really took to a new level amidst the Lunar New Year. And that's a holiday in which right beforehand you had hundreds of millions who left the major cities, left places like Beijing, went to their home provinces, and then were expected to come back. Well, what did we have? We had an extended Lunar New Year. Then you had really what was kind of a a moment of self-quarantine for several more days. And what you have now are many residential complexes saying if you don't have work and you don't have proof that you have works to some of these migrant workers in particular— we can't have you come back here. So they're essentially staying in their home provinces and not coming back in, in some cases, which is really keeping the crowds quite thin across much of Beijing. Now, one of the biggest things that we saw today, and this was rather significant, was for the first time in a while, we've seen President Xi Jinping coming out in public. Now, CNN's raised before the question as to where was he prior in in the midst of this crisis and this outbreak, and other outlets have as well, to be fair. Uh, He, today, made it clear that he wanted to be on the front lines of this, and CCTV, the state broadcaster, certainly running this. All of the state media outlets, you just go through their websites, and one by one, this is the lead image of the day is President Xi in that face mask that Everyone else is wearing around here. And he went to a local community, went to a hospital, went to a disease control center. And one of the things that he specified, in addition to protecting the medical workers and making sure that they have what they need to fight this epidemic, was the need to stabilize the economy. He also said he wanted to prevent Julia massive layoffs, because that's a concern here as China is now dealing with what is uh, really an isolated fight in the sense of several other countries have essentially cut off travel with them and said, uh, until things get better, we're not going to re-engage.
0: Yeah, it's so important, the point that you make, actually, about finally seeing President Xi here, getting involved in the middle of the action, that the front here, the presentation so important. But for me, right. the bottom line there, David, what you said, the, the official line here with regards getting back in action and getting back to work versus uh, the practicalities and what we see in practice. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. David Culver there. To Japan now, where 65 new cases of coronavirus have been found on board a cruise ship that remains docked in Yokohama, Japan. Will Ripley joins us from Tokyo on this story. Will, and I know, and I watched you earlier on our programming, you've been talking to one of those quarantined on the ship and actually currently infected with the coronavirus. What, what was the lady telling you? How is the situation there right now?
2: Rebecca Frazier from Oregon and her husband, Kent, uh, we talked to them when all of this unfolded without knowing that Rebecca had coronavirus. She actually tested positive uh, a couple of days after we first had contact with them. Initially, we were talking about the conditions being quarantined in their cabin and then everything changed when she got that positive test result. And it was scary for all of us. We, We worried about her. But I can tell you, after visiting her at uh, the hospital where she is uh, being held in quarantine here in Tokyo, and by the way, there are patients are being distributed amongst a number of different hospitals uh, throughout Tokyo here. I mean, there's, there's probably three or four hospitals within a two-mile radius of where I'm standing right now. Japanese government not saying where patients are being held, but we know we found Rebecca and we actually were standing outside the hospital earlier when an ambulance came by, driver in full hazmat gear, bringing in more patients. But she's not showing any symptoms, Julia. And a lot of her friends who've tested positive on the cruise ship uh, are not showing any symptoms either. In fact, some have described it as less severe than even a common cold. Uh, So I think that's the underreported aspect of all of this. There are this is obviously a a, a global health emergency, something that we all need to take very seriously. You should be washing your hands. Uh, Some people choose to wear surgical face masks. But the vast majority of patients do get better. And in fact, for some of these patients who are doing so well right now, They say their fear has diminished uh, in a a sense, uh, you know, now that they have it, because they're realizing that it's not as bad as perhaps they thought it might be. You know, people are, you know, when you hear coronavirus, people are assuming a death sentence. And that's simply not the case. To put it in context, Julia, so far, you know, the coronavirus has killed more than 900 people. The seasonal flu kills hundreds of thousands of people every year.
0: It's such a great point and I think we've been talking about this and making this point since the beginning. The comparison with flu here I think and even here in the United States, incredibly important. It was her general well being actually that struck me when I was when I was watching you talk about this earlier, Will. Just to give us a sense how far into the quarantine process are we on board the ship and are they getting any information about how long they're simply gonna have to wait until it's decided that they can all leave and they've got the all clear, particularly when more cases are being found, even if they're not symptomatic.
2: One thing that I just heard from Rebecca, my producer Sandy was speaking with her a short time ago, she might actually get out of the hospital before her husband gets off the ship. And by the way, her husband, Kent, does not have coronavirus, even though they were next to each other every single day, sleeping in the same bed, sharing their cabin, their bathroom. He continues to test negative. He wasn't part of that that group of 65 new cases. and he you know, he expected that he would test positive. He just, he just hasn't. He doesn't have it. At least at this stage, it hasn't been detected. And a lot of these new people who did test positive, they didn't even have fevers, which is why they weren't initially checked. The Japanese government is saying they are not going to test everybody on the ship. They say it's too difficult logistically to test 3,500 people. Uh, that in itself is pretty upsetting for the passengers who haven't been tested because they want to be. Some of them are you know, senior citizens. They're in that high-risk group over the age of 60 with pre-existing conditions like diabetes and heart disease or a weakened immune system that could really put them in a bad situation if they were to catch coronavirus. Uh, Also, parents who have young children and people want these tests, but the Japanese government saying it's just not feasible. But in terms of when people are actually going to get off the boat, is the date still February 19th or do all of these new uh, cases potentially change that date? Apparently, according to the captain of the Diamond Princess, you know, these new infections were not the result of some failure of the quarantine. He says that all these people were exposed before they went into quarantine, which indicates that it seems that for for now they're still going to try to get everybody off that boat on the 19th uh, as scheduled. But we'll see. That obviously could change depending on how this situation develops. And it is changing every single day.
0: Absolutely. It's it's fluid. Will, fantastic to have you with us. Will Ripley there on that story. All right, let's move on to our next driver. The White House planning a budget worth nearly $5 trillion for the fiscal year 2021. And it foresees at least another 10 years of federal deficits. Joe Johns is in Washington for us on this story. Joe, this is a a budget worthy of an election year. I have to say 3% growth for the future, bringing the deficit down despite more spending and cuts where you wouldn't want to see them. Will any of this come to fruition in your mind?
3: Well, you know, the rule in Washington is, especially when there's a divided government as there is now a president's budget, arriving on capitol hill is as they say dead on arrival and there are some people suggesting already up there that because democrats control the house of representatives republicans control the senate uh, that in fact is the case look this is the beginning of three-dimensional chess it's uh, what the president wants to spend more money on versus what the president wants to spend less money on versus what the congress wants to do so the indication is as you said the top line number actually four point eight trillion dollars uh, attempting to balance the budget in 15 years, not 10 years, as is the custom. And what does the president want to spend money on? More defense spending. He wants to spend money on his Space Force, wants to spend money on NASA and uh, so on. He also wants to give money to farmers. On the other hand, the president wants to cut social programs significantly, about a trillion and a half dollars, which, of course, will create howling on Capitol Hill. One of the flashpoints certainly will be entitlement programs the president has promised to preserve um, Medicare as well as Social Security. But there are some indications already that the president would like to cut Medicaid, which is the low cost medical program for people with low incomes. Uh, The White House indicating, in their view, they're not cutting the programs, they're just trying to get rid of waste, fraud and abuse, which is something uh, that people say when these fights begin. Long way to go. As I said, it's just a blueprint. And uh, we're going to have to see how this plays out over the next weeks and months. By the way, for our international audience, important to say also, there are some indications the president wants to uh, cut foreign aid significantly, almost by 20 percent. So that would be a big deal, too. Congress hasn't let him do that in the past. Julia, Uh, I
0: have to say, uh, no breaking news there. But yes, long road on this one. Joe Johns, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Now, speaking of breaking news, quite frankly, our next driver, I can tell you the Academy Awards have drawn criticism in recent years for a lack of diversity. And while the top acting awards went to white actors this year, Sunday night ceremony did take an unexpected turn with a movie from South Korea. CNN's Paula Hancock has more on that film's Oscar moment.
3: And the Oscar goes to...
4: Parasite. The moment Parasite made history. The first non-English language film to win best picture in 92 years of the Oscars. It's a scathing view of class inequality in South Korea, a black comedy that won four Oscars more than any other film. Accepting best director Bong Joon-ho gave a shout out to the director whose films he says he studied at school.
5: That quote was from uh, our great Martin
6: Scorsese, so.
4: (laughs) And a thanks to fellow director Quentin Tarantino.
6: Quentin, I love you.
0: Four times. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Crazy. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. It's an unbelievable night. It's uh, very hard to believe. It's such a great honor.
4: Congratulations are flooding in for the director, cast and crew from all around the world. Praise from the South Korean president and pride from fans on the streets of Seoul.
7: It's hard to win an award in a foreign country with a foreign picture, so it feels like it's overcome obstacles. It's a meaningful and special day for the Korean film industry.
0: I'm so happy that the movie has won the best picture.
8: I feel very proud watching the director and actors winning the awards and making speeches. It was a proud moment as a Korean watching them at the Oscars.
4: Parasite! Parasite has been winning accolades around the world this award season. The story of a poor family inserting themselves into a rich family's household and lives with devastating results. As for what comes next for Bong...
0: I'm ready, ready to drink tonight, so... <laughs> Until next morning. Thank you. Paula Hancock's CNN, PyeongChang, South Korea. I just love the moment when the director was just staring at the Oscar, smiling. It was um, very cute. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with uh, some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Angela Merkel's protege has announced she will not seek to become Germany's next chancellor. Angrit Kamp-Karrenbauer is also stepping down as the leader of the conservative CDU party, which is split over whether to form alliances with the far right. Ms. Merkel has said she won't serve as chancellor beyond her current term, which ends in The Sinn Féin party has won the most seats in the Irish general election as the first vote count comes in. The Nationalist party has won 29 seats so far, but that's not the overall majority required to form a government. Party leader Mary Lou McDonald is calling the victory a revolution. She says she will work on building a coalition government with other parties. Right now a powerful storm is hitting Ukraine as it makes its way to Russia. These are images provided by the Netherlands, showing the storm's intensity as it battered northern Europe with hurricane force winds over the weekend. In England, police airman died when a tree fell on top of his car during the storm. Travel warnings are still in place and flooding remains a threat as the storm progresses. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming right up, opening up your digital wallets. There are some stunning forecasts for the future of Banking Plus, gone but not forgotten. Why those images you thought you deleted might still come back to haunt you. A CNN investigation after this. Welcome back to First Move. Counting down to the stock market open in the United States this morning. Muted, that's what it's saying, as worries about the coronavirus outbreak. Keep a lid on sentiment here. We've slipped a bit even in the last 15 minutes. For context, though, it follows a strong week globally for equities. The S&P 500, in fact, having its biggest weekly gain since June. And among those... The next stock, I want to mention Tesla's stock pre-market, it's up right now over 6.6%. So bucking the broader trend there after a head spinning week. One company that's not been caught out, though, by Tesla's soaring share price is ARK Invest, which owns shares in the automaker ARK's big ideas of 2020 maps out its views of the future in cards, crypto, digital wallets, to name just a few things. Kathy Wood is the founder and CEO of ARK Invest and joins us now. Fantastic to have you with us. Great to be here, Julia. When I read this, I was so excited. I could take this conversation in 10 different directions, but I'm going to try and hone down. Let's talk about Tesla. Okay. You were out there... A long time, I think, before everybody else, with a sky-high valuation on a relative basis, saying, "Look, this is a this is a tech company, not an auto company." Yes. Is this what we're seeing now? From the we're beginning to uh, see uh, an, a better understanding of that.
7: Um, but interestingly, in the in the markets, as the stock has gone up, uh, the number of buy ratings has gone down. I saw that <laughs> there are seven buys, I believe, on the on the sell side. Yeah, and eighteen sells. So this is not like the late 90s when the investors were chasing dreams. This actually is a reality and they're running away from it. It's really interesting psychologically. I
0: mean, there are a lot of people who look at this and say, look, the short interest in this stock was so high. This feels incredibly squeezy. Even if you think that the story's changed now with with the, uh, the profitability, the annual profits, the China story here too, some acceptance of the battery technology. It feels like it's gone too far too fast.
7: Your response? So the closing price, roughly 750 on Friday, I know it's up today, um, uh, is uh, based on our projections. We believe uh, in our bare case, in other words, no autonomous effectively, that uh, in five years Tesla will reach 1500. Dollars. That's our target price in our bear case. That is a doubling 15% compound annual rate of return. That is our minimum hurdle rate of return.
0: But we've, I mean, we we're, were at one point last week, we were approaching, you know, $1,000. A $1,000. A yes. So, and so. Y- You're Uh, saying five years, so I can understand why some are looking at this and going, whoa.
7: Yes, so our base case in five years is $7,000, so nearly tenfold up from here. Uh, So, yes, uh, whenever we see a stock go parabolic, personally, I like to see a little bit of uh, settling out, (laughs) consolidation, and we will get it, no question. It's It's just a question of how many... Um, Investors uh, are beginning to understand that Tesla's cars are so far ahead of Daimler's, BMW's, Jaguar's, everyone they've been waiting to come out and compete. Uh, These companies cannot even
0: match Tesla's Model S from 2012. <laughs> you initially said that you thought they would lose some of their seventeen percent market share. You said they might lose a third. Mm. You're now suggesting that actually, maybe they won't even lose any of that. Yes. Well, the Tesla
7: killers that came out last year, we expected some share loss. Um, so we had Jaguar, Audi, uh, uh, Porsche, the Taycan, and uh, instead of going down from seventeen percent in uh, 2018, it went up to eighteen percent. And as they've released these cars, we've seen how far behind they are, Tesla, uh, behind Tesla. They were saying, well, wait a minute. The risk to our 34 million unit EV sales forecast in five years is not Tesla falling behind. It's these other auto Mm -hmm. manufacturers. So Tesla's share actually could go
0: up. It's almost like they're doing some of the PR for Tesla, but I do want to um, move on, even just the comparison. I want to talk digital wallets because the numbers on this are astonishing. Talk me through why you're looking at this specifically, because I know China and the prolific growth that we've seen in China in particular in this, but across Southeast Asia too, is, is what sort of caught your eye. Yes. Uh, when we saw in 2016
7: the numbers uh, for mobile payments, we just didn't believe them because yeah. they were almost as high as China's GDP. So China's mobile payments have gone from $1 trillion in 2014 to $34 trillion last year. That's a 34-fold increase in five years.
0: So they were, they were a tenth of GDP in, in 2014, and now they're, what, two and a half times? Two and a half times uh, GDP. Of Chinese GDP. Now,
7: global GDP is around $85 trillion. Uh, we believe, ultimately, that mobile payments will touch every one of those. But what we missed in the early days is money turns over every year. Velocity is called velocity, roughly five times in the U.S. So think that five times 80 or 90 trillion we're going to be touching you know, hundreds of trillions of dollars with mobile payments.
0: So how do investors take risk in this because you're saying actually at the very least these payment companies should be valued. On a sort of price per user, a customer yes. bank basis. Yes, and they're simply not. They are not.
7: If uh, if we back out the Square Cash App valuation and the and the PayPal Venmo uh, valuation, they're valued at a fraction, maybe five, ten percent <laughs> of what uh, a traditional bank. And we believe these digital wallets are going to effectively usurp the role of bank branches. They're going to be bank branches in our pocket. Uh, So uh, we think the traditional banks are in trouble because they have these tech players nipping at their heels. Although, interestingly, the number of digital users uh, that both Square and PayPal have has surpassed the number of digital users that JP Morgan has. More than 50 million. So they're already doing it. Yes,
0: yes. Kathy, we will get e back to talk more about this. I I lost track of time over Tesla again. (laughs) Kathy Wood, founder, CEO and CIO of ARK Invest. Phenomenal to have you with us. Thank you. The Market Open is next. Move live from the New York Stock Exchange. And that was the opening bell. Some high fives there, but not helping the markets this morning. US stocks are a touch lower here. A reminder, though, of what we saw for context last week Wall Street closing out its best week in eight months. The NASDAQ, though, off some five tenths of 1%. And of the gates this morning. What about Europe? Stocks there now slightly lower. Coronavirus concerns around the world, I think, the death toll surpassing the number of people that lost their lives through SARS. Also, on the data front here, worth watching the fundamentals amid the uh, dent to sentiment here. Italy's industrial output was much weaker than expected in December, falling some 2.7% from the month before. So, that's not helping uh, sentiment in Europe either. Asia, also softer, the Hang Seng slipping, falling for a second straight session. What happened in Asia today? Well, China's state TV showed President Xi Jinping visiting several public places to oversee efforts to contain coronavirus, as David Culver was telling us earlier. the Global Movers, what about what's going on there? Fasten your seatbelts. Tesla stock is on the move once again. Upwards, no immediate catalyst here, but we've seen a wild ride for Elon Musk. So uh, up, down, up, down is the, uh, the name of the game on a daily basis, it seems, for that stock right now. What about Eli Lilly falling? after it's coming under an experimental Alzheimer's drug, did not live up to expectations in a recent trial. And we've got Mattel under a bit of pressure too. It's having to close factories as it battles to cut costs and streamline operations. Let's move on. The coronavirus now officially deadlier than SARS, and the contagion shows few signs of slowing. At least a dozen drug makers have joined the race to find a vaccine, but those on the front line warn we are still a long way away. Among them is GlaxoSmithKline's head of vaccines. He says we're looking at a timeline of 12 to 18 months. Thomas Breyer, Chief Medical Officer for GSK Vaccines, joins me now. Thomas, fantastic to have you with us. I believe that a fresh vaccine that's not been taken from something else and attempted or at least tested would normally take 10 years so is is 12 to 18 months actually an optimistic estimate in this regard
9: yes so uh, normal uh, vaccine development indeed takes uh, eight to ten years however what has happened over the last few years that the time period between starting the development and having candidate in, in hand has dramatically been reduced. So we can have vaccine candidates in hand within three months, and two companies have already announced they have vaccine candidate. However, what takes longer is testing the vaccine in humans, because we have to make absolutely sure that the vaccine A uh, creates an appropriate immune response and is uh, safe. And that takes time, and therefore, Under optimistic circumstances, I would guesstimate it takes 12 to 18 months until we have a vaccine uh, uh, ready for use.
0: I was um, looking at some of the headlines last week, and I believe that um, Gilead, the pharmaceutical company, is conducting human trials here, to the point that you were making. How much longer from the point that you're actually conducting human trials can you at least attempt to bring that vaccine to market? Is it still several months? Is it still that 12 to 18 months? Or could it be shorter?
9: So Gillian is a company and they currently have in testing what is called antivirals. So these are medicines not vaccines. Uh, Fortunately, there are some candidates out there either from uh, existing drugs or from drugs which were already in development and they can already be tested. However, the um, virus is only known since the beginning of January. uh, So it takes longer to develop a vaccine candidate. So a vaccine under really optimistic scenarios can be available maybe in 12 to 18 months. So will not have a direct impact uh, in the ongoing uh, pandemic in China, but depending on how long it takes uh, until the virus comes to Europe or the U.S., there may be a window of opportunity.
0: Yeah, the distinction here is so important because I think the degree of misinformation on this front remains huge. Can I ask whether you're working with any other companies and whether you would work with biotech companies in China in particular to try and foster innovation and accelerate innovation here are you open to that and do you know if work is
9: is already ongoing yes yeah, so uh, last sunday we announced uh, gsk's uh, willingness to work with other companies because we have what is called an adjuvant which is a technique which amplifies the uh, immune response so it has the potential to create a stronger vaccine or if you want to see it in a different way you have to use less vaccine uh, per dose, which means you can produce many more doses which are of particular importance uh, during a pandemic. And yes, uh, we have already announced we are working with the University of Queensland in Australia. Uh, Since we announced that we are willing to work with other companies, We have now been contacted by more than half a dozen companies and currently um, evaluating uh, who we make our adjuvant technology uh, available to. But this will be uh, decided uh, at very short notice and obviously companies in China are included here.
0: Yeah, it's good to hear. Do financials come into the decision to develop a vaccine? or an alternative here that you could perhaps take from something else and test. Does money come into it? And is this in a certain situation actually not financially viable or in fact worthwhile to invest technology, time and money in developing something like this? Just, Can you help me understand what the monetary impact is here and whether that impacts a decision in this process?
9: I think... Uh for companies like GSK, this is not the moment uh, to uh, elaborate on this. Uh, everyone wants to pull together, see how uh, individual companies, individual, individual technologies can help. And uh, monetary aspects uh, are secondary. So concretely, we will make our adjuvant now available uh, at no cost for research. Uh, Should these vaccines go into clinical development we will make our adjuvant uh, available at cost and Should a vaccine really be made broadly available, we have the production capacity to produce the adjuvant uh, in high volumes, and GSK has always followed what we call a tiered pricing approach. So the vaccine, uh, if it comes to light, will be made available at very different costs uh, according to the country where it will be used into.
0: It's good to know uh, human life and health comes before uh, the money. Thomas, fantastic to have you with us. Thomas Breyer, the Chief Medical Officer for GSK Vaccines. Thank you very much, sir. All right, let me bring you up to speed with today's boardroom brief. General Motors says it will restart production in China in five days' time. The U.S. company halted work for the Lunar New Year holiday in January. It delayed reopening as the coronavirus outbreak impacted travel and disrupted the movement of goods. E-commerce giant Alibaba is offering up to $2.8 billion in loans to Chinese firms hit by the coronavirus. Companies from Hubei, where the virus was first detected, will get preferential terms. Beijing has urged banks to lower interest rates and extend loans in the wake of the outbreak. In China, the price of food and other essentials is soaring as the coronavirus squeezes supplies. Inflation for consumer goods hit 5.4% in January. Earlier today, the government announced it will be increasing imports of meat and other goods amid the shortages. John Defteris joins me now. John, it was what we were describing two weeks ago, the fallout here, the supply chain Mm. impact, whether it's uh, essentials, whether it's food, we're clearly seeing it having a knock-on impact here.
6: Yeah, let's call it the collateral damage from the coronavirus, right. uh, uh, Julia. And in fact, this hits right in the pocketbook. Uh, that consumer price increase is the highest since we've seen in uh, nine years. I dug up the numbers, and there's a couple of standouts there with vegetables uh, prices going up by 17% over the last year. And get this, pork prices because of the swine disease they had in 2019 rising 117%. So this is uh, quite severe. There's obviously hoarding going on because people are panicking in some of the provinces. And then also discussion about uh, price gouging. Uh, We had the Chinese uh, Supreme Court put out a statement, in fact, saying that price gouging will be met with prison terms. So this is the central government coming down and putting the word out. Uh, As you talked about here, Alibaba's financial division trying to ease the pressure. Half of that $2.8 billion or just above that is earmarked for companies that are operating in the Hubei province, particularly around Wuhan. And we'll have to wait and see February 20th whether the central bank decides to ease interest rates here again, send The message we're standing by after the slower response to the crisis uh, financially to try to help you out.
0: Yeah, I mean that's an astonishing rise in import prices, in particular. You know, you and I have been talking about the, yeah, I mean the, the impact that will have, the, um, the the divergence between the message that's being sent by certain assets like bonds, like the commodity markets, and the relative highs that we've seen in equity markets. What about the ore markets, John? Because there's more developments there, particularly on the Chinese front
6: in the last 30 minutes. And uh, in fact, Julia, we're struggling to hold on to $50 a barrel on WTI in the United States and surrendered $54 a barrel for North Sea Brent. Uh, This is not about an oversupplied market. This is the biggest challenge for the OPEC plus players right now. But it is uh, demand collapsing in a big way in China. uh, Other sources have confirmed this uh, collapse of 3 million barrels uh, of demand of the 10 million that they import. So this is very complicated uh, going forward. And I think there's uh, quite a a nasty turn from a business standpoint as well, with some of the state uh, run oil and gas companies uh, using force majeure to cancel contracts of imported LNG. Again, some sources in the region have confirmed they've seen that as well. Uh, and this doesn't build confidence going forward about how bad things are in the manufacturing chain. I talked about OPEC Plus. There is a press release that's put out uh, from the rotating president of OPEC from Algeria, the minister of energy, uh, there saying that. They'd like to extend the cuts throughout 2020, the voluntary cuts, but now they're putting pressure on some of the other players that didn't want to sign on last week, suggesting they'd like to have the cuts deeper and through the second quarter of the year. And this is something that we know that Russia has resisted. The date seems to be holding at March 5th and 6th for the extraordinary meeting right now, Julia. But again, sources are telling me they may want to bring that back uh, if possible, if the Russians can make decisions on the cuts.
0: Yeah I was going to say be surprised if they can hold on that long John Devteris great to have your intel on the show. Thank you so much for that. And there's a special edition of Crest Means Business today. Richard will be speaking to some of the world's top travel executives and chief economists as the coronavirus continues to take its toll. That, of course, at the usual time of 8pm in London, 5pm in New York, and it will replay on Tuesday morning across Asia. We're going to take a quick break. We're coming up on First Move, the app that's triggered fears of facial recognition technology and the dystopian future it may be leading to CNN sits down with the man behind it all. Next. Welcome back to First Move where we dig into an app that could help end privacy as we know it. Clearview AI's powerful facial recognition technology allows users to match faces to other images on the Internet, sitting on a massive database of billions of photos scraped from the Internet. The app is under fire from lawmakers and tech giants alike. Ardonio Sullivan spoke to the man behind it all.
8: Wow. Oh, my God. Is that you? That photo is me. Doesn't look like you. That's when you were younger? That's my face. A photo I haven't seen in years. Found in seconds by the facial recognition app Clearview AI.
5: Peerview is
8: basically a search engine for faces. Peerview has scraped billions of images from sites like Facebook, Twitter, and Google to use in a facial recognition system. He claims more than 600 law enforcement agencies in the US and Canada are using it, though it's unclear how many have actually paid for it.
5: So that's the photo of you.
8: So this is a a photo of me from CNN.com. Wow. (laughs) We're starting to see pictures of me that are not from that original image. This is from Medium. Tech giants aren't happy about this. They say it violates their terms of service and have sent cease and desist letters. This AI technology is looking at what
6: it's looking at. The unique features, so it learns to ignore things a little bit like the beard and fe- focus on the features that stay the same across uh, you know, different ages. Do you
8: understand why people find this creepy?
6: can understand people having concerns around privacy. So the first part to remember, it's only publicly available information. We're not just making technology for its own sake. The reason and the purpose we found is to really help law enforcement solve crime. I was deeply disturbed. I was concerned about
8: how Clearview had amassed its database of images. I was concerned about its data privacy, and I was concerned that it was tracking law enforcement searches. Are you concerned about taking a tool as powerful as that out of the hands of law enforcement? A facial recognition tool can be used properly if we understand how the database is created. Clearview claims its app is 99% accurate, a claim that CNN hasn't verified. So, you think this is an area that should be regulated? Yeah,
6: absolutely. I don't think regulation is a bad thing, and we want to work with the government to create something that is uh, safe and understandable and keeps uh, the whole
5: public at ease.
0: Antonio Sullivan joins us now. Great job with this, Stoney. I, I find it quite terrifying. It's not just the images, it allows someone to just take a picture of someone and find them on the internet and build a. A far more broad profile of them, surely, than just images. It's far more information, whatever's out there, quite frankly.
8: Yeah, I mean, I think what we find most spooky about that, where they were able to, you know, find this photo of me from when I was a teenager also my producer she ran her face through the uh, database and it found an image from her Instagram account even though her Instagram account has been private for almost a year basically Clearview went in downloaded all her photos before she made the account private so we find that pretty spooky but for law enforcement that is I guess the appeal of this tool that they can they, they, there isn't a, a government database like this that we know of so when this private company has built this and we can you know find face from Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and everywhere else, that is something that's uh, really powerful for them. But, you know, I think what's most interesting about this company and as I was speaking to its founder was, you know, a lot of what they're doing sounds wrong and it seems like something you should say, oh, is is that illegal? But there really isn't a lot of laws in this space. So I think what we're going to see with this company is that it could be a sort of precedent-setting company uh, that could help define the laws through the courts of how facial recognition and artificial intelligence is used in the 21st century, Julia.
0: Yeah, I mean, they'd certainly want to try and shape and craft regulation to avoid being over-regulated here, but they're open to that. I mean, that was part of the conversation that you were having there. Even they understand this is something pretty powerful.
8: Yeah. And what's also interesting is, you know, in the past few weeks since the New York Times, um, first uncovered this company is that we have the likes of Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and Google and YouTube all sending cease and desist letters saying you guys have to stop taking our, taking photos from our platforms. But it's not, you know, it's not clear that they really that Clearview would have to actually comply with those based on some uh, court cases here in the US and also it's you know it's a little bit um, like uh, I guess um, shutting the barn door after the horse is bolted you know we've seen how much data he's already got and it's almost impossible for a company like Facebook to verify that you know he's going to delete it. Uh,
0: Guys be careful what you put out there. We've just got to be more careful with our own data. Donia Sullivan, great job. Thank you for joining us on that. And you can see Donia's full report at CNN.com slash business, and I'll tweet it out as well. It's definitely six minutes well spent watching that. All right, coming up on First Move. Parasite claims victory in Hollywood. What the twist ending to the Oscars and the film, apparently. I've not seen it yet. means for the film industry after this. Welcome back to First Move and the winner is Parasite, the South Korean film, breaking the Oscars language barrier and becoming the first non-English language film to win top prize at the Oscars. Frank Pelota joins us with all the details on this. I mean, that's one of the astonishing things of the night as well. And then compare and contrast, I think, what happened with the streamers, Netflix specifically and The Irishman. Plenty to discuss on this Oscars night. Talk us through it.
5: Yeah, it was really a tale of two Oscars. You had the tale about Parasite. It was the first foreign film to win in the history of the Oscars, win Best Picture, I should say. And it was just a big, big deal. I mean, most people thought that 1917 was going to be the big winner of the night. But Parasite took some of the major categories, including Best Picture and Best Director. Now, on the other side of that, the other big narrative out of last night is Netflix really didn't take home much. Netflix took home Best Documentary for American Factory and Best Supporting Actress for Laura Dern, in Marriage Story. But when you think about it, reports out there that uh, Netflix spent upwards at of least $70 million on Oscar campaigning and went home nearly empty handed. So not a great night for them, but a great night for Parasite.
0: Yeah. I mean, I read some reports saying a hundred million dollars worth of spending and the average film studio spends what between five to twenty million dollars. What do you think Martin Scorchese, who had that battle over where to release this, thinks in light of what happened last night? Would it have made a I mean, difference? It's,
5: it's, it's, I really don't know. It's really interesting to think about, though. It's one of these major debates that the industry is going to have to think about going forward is was there a backlash to Netflix last night? It seems like there was. I mean, The Irishman was a a well-acclaimed movie, so was Marriage Story. They had other great films like Klaus, the animated film, and American Factory. That also won. But when you think about it, like, you know, you had The Two Popes. You had My Name is Dolomite, which didn't get nominated. Maybe the Academy is having this kind of, like, allergic reaction to Netflix, and maybe an olive branch would be more theatrical releases. We'll have to see.
0: I've not seen Parasite. I, I watched 1917 though, no, and I thought it was phenomenal. So uh, Parasite's got to, a lot to live up to. Great to have you with us, Frank. Thank you so much for that. That just about wraps up the show. I'm Julia Chesley, You've been watching First Move. Time to go make your we'll see you in a couple of hours with the Express.